1: The way that conflict is playing out in our work relationship is very similar to what would be happening in our personal relationships. I think it's that, what do therapists call it, the core scene. The arguments that you come back to again and again, and I think resolving that within our work has been really healthy for us.
2: Welcome back to Working. I'm your host, Isaac Butler.
0: And I'm your other host, June
2: Thomas. June, it is great to see you again on Zoom. How's things?
0: (laughs) Things are great, thank you. I'm well. I I got to go to the dentist on two separate occasions this week, so clearly I am doubly energized by my time in the chair and... We all got to see each other in person last week. That is I know. when I say it all, it's you and me and our great producer Cameron. We were actually all in the same room together. That was. I,
2: I know it's only the second time I have been in the presence of Cameron Drews and seen the light that shines out of his magisterial person, and you know it, it was. It's very impressive. It's little it's intimidating. A little intimidating.
0: <laughs> it's quite a thing. So, who are our guests this week, June? So our guests this week are Natalia and Lauren O'Hara. They are sisters from the north of England who write children's books together. They've created four so far. The first two are already out in the United States. That's Hortense and the Shadow and the Bandit Queen. They're both really fun. And then Frindleswild will be out in the States this fall. And Once Upon a Fairy Tale will appear in the UK in June and hopefully not too much later over here. And I should also mention that Lauren also illustrated a book written by Sophie Dahl. That's Madame Badubada.
2: <laughs> Madame Badubada. that's amazing. And you know what else is amazing? Siblings doing books together. My, my, my. Mm-hmm. Can I ask, though, what drew you, mm-hmm. a person I don't think of as reading a lot of children's books, to want to interview the O'Hara sisters?
0: You are correct in that impression, Isaac, It was a tip from the wonderful Shana Roth, who's a Slate producer and sometime host of The Waves. She has a two-year-old, and they're both big fans of the O'Hara's books. And so she told me I should speak with them, and I always do what Shana tells me.
2: Ah, that's a good policy. That's a no. good policy.
0: Yeah.
2: Uh, I believe we have something a little extra for our Slate Plus subscribers this week.
0: Oh, boy, do we. I asked Eve and how they reward the adults who read the books to their children, or to children, and... My favourite question. I asked about their Northern English roots after I noticed that one of the stories contained the rhyme boots, books and newts. And yes, people, they really do rhyme. And I had to ask them about that.
2: Do they rhyme, though? They really, really do. Well... Even if I don't agree with you that those words rhyme, that sounds like a delightful bonus segment. And you know, in these troubled times, don't we need as much delight as we can get our grubby little hands on? Of course we do. And that's why you should sign up for Slate Plus at slate.com slash working plus. Slate Plus members get bonus segments on shows like this one, bonus full episodes of shows like Big Mood, Little Mood. You get full access to everything behind the paywall on the mothership site. And uh, you get to feel good about supporting everything we do right here on working. Once again, you can sign up at slate.com slash working plus. All right. Now let's listen in on June's conversation with Natalia and Lauren O'Hara.
0: So please introduce yourselves and tell us what you do. We are Lauren and Natalia O'Hara and
1: we are a picture book author and illustrator team. And this is Lauren talking.
0: So how did this children's picture book collaboration come about? Where did it begin?
3: It began when I was six and Lauren was three and people (laughs) used to ask us, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I used to say, I want to write books. And Lauren would say, I want to draw the pictures.
0: Wow. Okay, that's a very distant origin story. But then when you came to be doing your first one, it must have been a bit more planned than when you were six and three. How did the first book that actually got published begin?
1: It was. It took us a little while to come back round to that. I think we forgot about that aim for a really long time. But just coincidentally, I had done illustration at university and I'd actually dropped out because I I didn't want to be. I decided I didn't want to be an illustrator. Um, And Natalia had been doing English at university. And we were a good few years out of university and she was working as a freelance journalist. Um, and copywriter and I had worked in various design industries and um, we went for a coffee one day and Natalia came up with some fake Dr. Seuss lines and I they they were great and I just turned to her and was like you you should write a children's book and she turned to me and said you should illustrate a children's book and I said no (laughs) that that's never happening. Why
0: were you resistant?
1: Well, I had dropped off my illustration degree halfway through because I I didn't think I could illustrate. Um, I was having quite a hard time on the course. It was a very intense course, a very good, very intense course. Mm. And at that point, I really, I was struggling. I didn't think I could do it. I didn't have the confidence. And so it just felt like something that wasn't going to be possible for me to do. Um, but fortunately, I had a <laughs> big sister who believed in me and who, uh, yeah, who was quite willing to strong arm me into it, for which I'm very grateful.
0: I feel really bad for our listeners because, um, you know, this is an audio medium. And so it's going to be hard for them to see your artwork while they're listening right now. But i let me assure them that the artwork is amazing. Uh, there's a, such a um, a charming and really compelling style. So it's funny for me to hear that you weren't always confident, or you, because the art is beautiful. Thank you so much, June. That's really <laughs> kind. <laughs> so I'm glad that you persisted, um, Natalia. I, I I saw an interview that you did about your first book together, Hortensa and Her Shadow, and. It almost made it sound like it was kind of a lark that you started to do a book together. Is that so, or or did you take it deadly serious at the beginning?
3: We take everything so seriously. (laughs) We had very low self-confidence, so we didn't think there was any chance it would get picked up, that we'd be signed by an agent, that we'd get a publisher. So in that sense, we weren't taking it very seriously. But I think in a way, not taking it seriously was slightly strategic Mm. And we were certainly taking the work very seriously. We, As soon as we started doing it, we both felt that we'd come home. We were doing the thing we would always meant to do. And we were putting everything we could into it. And at the same time, we just had an attitude, this is just for us, we're learning. We'll keep the expectations really low.
0: Actually, that reminds me, I wanted to ask, uh, in the sort of biographical sketches, which in children's books are very brief, it mentions that, um, you know, when you first started working together, you had other jobs. Do you still have other jobs or has this become a bigger part of your lives now?
3: I still have another job, although by the time we started *Short Tense in the Shadow, I was um, head of development at a tiny little film company. And after our first book was published, I think it was, I just realized that doing two creative jobs was too much, that hours and film are incredibly long and the work is really intense and creative as well and it wasn't compatible so at that point I went back into corporate copywriting which is something I'd done in the past.
0: And is that something you
3: still do? I'm on sabbatical right now but yeah that's still my job.
0: And what about you Lauren?
1: So I that's I'm an illustrator now that's what I do full-time which is great and I love it.
0: So let's talk about how the two of you collaborated on your first book, Hortense and The Shadow. I know you both live in different cities now, but you were both in London when you wrote that first book. What was that collaboration like? Natalia, let's start with you.
3: I think that the majority of the actual collaboration we were doing was on the phone. So we would spend hours both working at our desks and be on the phone. And often we wouldn't even be talking to each other. We'd just be working and exchanging occasional words. And the times when we got together, I think we were mostly just kind of, it was almost like a little celebration of the work. We would have a coffee, we would look at each other's work and we would encourage each other. It was like more psychological. So Natalia and I work
1: very closely together. We've been told by our publishers that we work more as an author-illustrator than as an author and an illustrator. So in the very first instance, Natalia came up with a list of story ideas, and we sat down and we looked at them and we discussed which one it was that we wanted to try, Mm
3: -hmm.
1: which was Hortense in the Shadow. Um, We knew it was quite unusual and quite dark and quite strange, but it was the one that spoke the most to us. So we said, well, let's give it a try, cut our teeth on it. Um, But the process does happen in tandem. So Natalia will be writing whilst I'm doing character development. And we'll be doing visual research together at the same time which very much helps me with establishing style and mood and it also really helps Natalia which I I think is um, something that's very particular to her that she works in a very visual way and does a lot of visual research so we'll be doing visual research together she'll be plotting and then we'll start to dummy the book out together so figure out page layouts and all of this will be happening in tandem so although I'm the illustrator and Natalia is the writer our process very much happens in tandem and kind of in a feedback loop between the two of us so everything is happening all at the same time.
0: And how are you sharing uh, I can imagine how Natalia shows her words with you how are you sharing uh, the images with her?
1: Oh just endless iPhone photos <laughs> message to her all day. <laughs> And I'll have changed one little tiny colour or added a whisker and I'll send it to her and be like, what do you think of this whisker? Do you think, yes, no?
0: (laughs) Amazing. So I was an only child, uh, but I know there are all different kinds of sibling dynamics. You know, there's the mind meld siblings. There's the who is this person siblings. There's the you and my lifelong nemesis, kind of like Hortense and her shadow relationship. What kind of sisters are you guys
1: All of the above. I was going to say exactly the same thing.
0: (laughs) Interesting. Now, I once interviewed Susie Roach and Lucy Wainwright Roach, who are a mother and daughter who write and perform music together. And I asked them how they dealt with conflicts over their collaboration specifically. And I didn't totally believe the happy story that they told me. So I'm curious What kinds of conflicts have arisen when you've been working on a book together and how do you resolve them? Uh, Do you want to begin, Natalia? (laughs)
3: Yeah, you can start. (laughs) We had the same argument again and again and again until we sorted it out, but I'm not sure it's very interesting to anybody.
0: Well, what is it?
3: Lauren used to call me the art director for obvious reasons (laughs) and it was very justified.
0: So what does that mean? You You were taking excessive... Control over the art? What what does that mean?
3: I think what we worked out was that there are just times when Laura needed encouragement and not to be criticised and that she was expecting me to intuit when those times were and I would just give her a barrage of constructive feedback every time and that could feel a lot like criticism. And it wasn't until our third book together that we diagnosed exactly what was going wrong that we would have these huge blowouts on all our other books and we, we haven't argued since, actually. So I'm so grateful that we had that final cataclysmic <laughs> row. I absolutely
1: agree <laughs> with, um, with Natalia's assessment of it. I think it was a big adjustment working together. And we have both worked really hard at being able to do that in a supportive and healthy way. And I'm... I, I feel like we've really done some hard work there. But I think it's sort of inevitable that the way that conflict is playing out in our work relationship is very similar to what would be happening in our personal relationships. I think it's it's that, what do therapists call it, the core scene, the arguments that you come back to again and again. And I think resolving that within our work has been really healthy for us. Um, healthy for our relationship, because I think it's really helped us to resolve a lot of um, conflict within our interpersonal relationship as well.
0: Yeah, interesting. Um, Children's books are very segmented in terms of audience, especially when it comes to picture books. You know, there's typically an indication, at least in the states of the age range that the book is intended for or suitable for. How much attention do you pay to the questions like reading level and so on. Are you given guidance on what subject is suitable for the different age groups, Natalia?
3: No, you're not given much guidance. You're given criticism if they feel that you're hitting the wrong note for the age group that it makes the most sense to place your book in. That's when you start having those conversations.
0: Do you have an example of when that's happened?
3: I'm not sure that's ever happened with our publishers. What has happened is we've taken out books and other publishers have felt that there were things that weren't age-appropriate in them. For instance, when we took out Hortense in the Shadow, one of the publishers wanted us to add parents because they thought it was too strange and unsettling for a child to be living alone in a house in the woods, which is understandable. And another comment we had was that the idea of... And it's threatening a little child was too scary, so we should make them
0: into wolves. <laughs> I find wolves so much more scary than bandits. Those are very sweet bandits. They wear stripy shirts. Come on.
3: This is all so subjective and different publishers have different ideas of what's age appropriate and you get very different responses from different, even members of a team. Two different editors might have a completely different feeling. So it's very it's a movable feast, I guess. <laughs>
1: I feel like it was actually, that was a very good experience for our first book because we were so, it was a strange and dark book and we really wanted to find the right home for it and for us. And so actually sort of made our choice a lot easier as to where Mm. our home should be for finding a team that just really understood what it was we were trying to do and what it was we were trying to say and and why actually, you know, it needed to be a little girl living on her own in the woods.
0: Well, it's interesting. One of the things that, you know, I I have read all of your books together and there are certain themes that recur. Uh, There's a lot of girls alone who are kind of making themselves into heroes, putting themselves in peril sometimes to seek connection or family, which they're lacking in some way. Do you have any sense of why that's such a compelling theme for the two of you? So we kind of raised ourselves somewhat.
3: Our Mm. mother had a chronic illness, which began when I was 10 and Lauren was seven. Mm. And our father was kind of working very hard, hardly ever home. So one of the strategies we had for kind of raising ourselves was reading and books. I think that's where that kind of amalgamation of things came together.
0: Yeah, another thing that strikes me is that A lot of the girls um, are, as far as you can tell, at least, you know, you don't get a family tree, but they seem to be only children. Uh, And I know for a fact, neither of you are only children. Uh, So do you have a theory of why you keep returning to that plot line because or that scenario? Because, again, you've mentioned kind of being so important for each other in in real life, as it were. Um, Why the kind of only child uh, scenario, do you think?
1: I think the only child scenario is a good way of having a shorthand for that aloneness Mm. and that loneliness. Because I think whilst we had each other when we were little, our experience of life was quite alone and it was quite lonely. And I think putting a sibling into those stories... Nak, I feel like
3: you know what I'm saying. Can you say it? <laughs> right. A lot of our characters are only children because we are exploring issues around loneliness and also around self actualization. A lot of the stories are about some kind of struggle with the self, especially Hortense and the shadow. It's really about a child's relationship with herself. So having siblings in there would just complicate things, really. I think that there are slightly tangential ways that we're expressing the closeness of family. There are places that comes up, but not necessarily yet through a sibling relationship, although we've talked for years about doing a story about two
0: sisters. Before we leave the topic of kind of the content of your books, you know, there's a, I don't even know what it is at this point, a piece of received Wisdom, That may or may not be true, but there's a belief that girls will read books where boys are the main character, but boys won't read books where girls are the main character, and therefore there are more children's books with male protagonists. And I'm curious, first of all, what's your response to that oft-quoted nugget? Do you think it's true?
3: I think, sadly, it is very true. Mm. I think it's somewhat of a self-fulfilling prophecy, And I think it approaches the way adults give books to children because it's really a fallacy that recurs a lot that children are picking their own books. Children don't pick their own books. They don't go to the bookshops. It's the parents and the librarians and the teachers and aunts and uncles and grandparents who are putting the books into the children's hand. But in terms of the fact that our books could have been more commercial if they had male protagonists, we did consider that. And we came up just before that huge moment which I'm sure you remember when suddenly everyone wanted to write about girls because there was kind of a deliberate effort to counteract it we Mm. didn't do it for that reason we just did it because it's what we wanted to do we're girls ourselves and we wanted to write books that were compelling and real so we were writing from our own lives
1: I think Natalia is absolutely right I think when I say it's true sadly it doesn't actually reflect what children's organic reading habits would be but it absolutely reflects the gatekeepers. I worked in a bookshop, a lovely little children's bookshop in Dublin um for a time. And you would have children coming in and just, you know, very organically and very delightfully and very joyously picking books off the shelves that they were drawn to and I I never really saw any particular split in terms of what they were picking up, but then it was the gatekeepers, it was the parents or the aunts and uncles who would come in and say, "Oh, I don't want to buy that." it's about a girl and it's, it's for my nephew. Or, and it's, it was very frustrating, <laughs> and yeah. very sad.
0: Well, your books thus far, at least, have been about girls. Are they for girls or do you think they'll be more meaningful to little girls? Like, how do you think about that? It's is kind of the other part of that question, I guess.
3: We've actually had, like, some fan mail from little boys and some mums getting in touch with us saying that their boys like our books. And we've also had a couple of little boys dressing up as our characters <laughs> <laughs> for World Book Day so they do make their way into the hands of boys but often I get the feeling that there's usually a mom who's giving the books to the boys because they're usually the ones who contact us
2: we'll be back with more from June's conversation with Natalia and Lauren O'Hara after this This episode of Working is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love listening to in-depth interviews and discussions of craft and creative process or whatever the heck it is, all the other podcasts you listen to do, you call the shots with what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance too. enter the name, your price tool from progressive. The name, your price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.
1: With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption in logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on Logistics Insights at maersk.com slash insights.
2: Hey, listeners, it's Isaac here. You may have noticed that we've launched this new bi-weekly bonus version of the show focused mostly on listener questions and advice. It's called Working Overtime, and you'll get it every other Thursday when you subscribe to our show. Which, by the way, if you're enjoying the show, why not go subscribe to it wherever you get your podcasts? But anyway... What I wanted to say is we would love to feature your questions, your concerns, your ideas, and more on the show. Is there a creative problem you're having or maybe a creative success, some advice you want to give us and the other listeners? Is there something you'd like to hear us talk more about? Well, drop us a line at workingatslate.com or call us and leave a voicemail at 304-933-WORK. And we'll make sure to feature your responses in the show. All right, now back to June's conversation with Natalia and Lauren O'Hara.
0: This question will probably seem like it's exclusively intended for Lauren, but I don't mean it so. I'm curious about the materials you use, how you actually do your work. Um, What kind of art materials are you using, Lauren? And Natalia, do you write this literally in the same way that you do your other writing? I mean, do you use the same kind of writing program or are you handwriting. Uh, Maybe let's begin with you, Lauren.
1: I work almost exclusively with traditional media. I use a mix of inks and gouache, um, a lot of sketching out beforehand. And then I do my composing, uh, my sort of putting everything together digitally. Um, But in the first instance, everything is hand painted.
3: But there are a lot more Materials with Hortense in the Shadow than with later books, I think, because you were experimenting with a lot of different materials. So, for instance, in Hortense in the Shadow, there's watercolour, there's ink, there's gouache, there's acrylic. You used salt to create textures. I did. I think it took me a little while
1: to streamline my process.
0: And Natalia, what about you?
3: It's probably the visual way I think, but I do a lot of boards and diagrams and charts and... Like, I I kind of draw out the plot a lot on paper. And I also do a lot of sketches as I'm kind of trying to find the structure and the, the mood. And it's also just something I do when I can't think of what to write next. But then once I'm actually drafting the book, I just do it on Word
0: on my laptop. And when you say you're doing sketches, are you sort of showing progression, showing movement or...? She does these absolutely
1: incredible
0: pen and ink drawings in the margins of little cities and
1: uh, landscapes. that They're absolutely beautiful. Wow. She's very clever.
0: Well, that's super interesting. And Lauren, are you kind of trying to match Natalia's sketches? Do you try and push them out of your mind? How do they affect your illustrations?
1: I I think I try my best to ignore them. (laughs) <laughs> because they are so lovely and so world building as Natalia was saying she 's trying to do her own world building, and at the same time i'm trying to do my world building and Although those two things are happening in tandem and we have a very similar aesthetic and um that visual research is happening at the same time, I think in terms of my actual drawings uh it's quite important for me to sort of have building blocks and start from just very rough sketches and so I try not to be too influenced um by what Natalia has been sketching. But having said that, she's also um has a we draw very different things. It's interesting because mm-hmm. when she's doodling or when I'm doodling, we're do- doodling totally different things. So sometimes I have drawn on it because she has done these lovely um sort of cityscapes and buildings and it's something that I'm not particularly drawn to drawing. And so I have asked her for reference of those before so that I can get some ideas for what some little buildings <laughs> could look like.
0: Lauren, you've done one book without Natalia. Uh, you provided the illustrations for, and I'm, I don't really know how to say it, so I'm just going to take a, a run at it. Madame Badooboda, uh which the text was written by Sophie Dahl, who, yes, is related to Roald Dahl. She's his granddaughter. Although I also want to know that she's also the granddaughter of the late monologuist Stanley Holloway. How did you come to work with her on what I believe was her first children's book?
1: That's right. It was her first children's book. And she was publishing with Walker and she actually requested me as the illustrator. She had been looking around trying to find somebody that she felt their aesthetic worked with her writing. Um, And I believe it was actually her brother who gave her a copy of Hortense in the Shadow. And yeah, she obviously liked it enough to ask if I would illustrate the book for her, um, or rather ask Walker as the publisher. Mm. We had met with them when we were shopping our first book together around publishers. So we already had a pre-established relationship with them. And it was a publisher that... I'd wanted to work with for a really long time. A lot of our books when we were children were Walker oh. books, which is Candlewick in the US. Oh. And yeah, so I was absolutely delighted to be asked.
0: And did you learn anything about the way you collaborate with your sister when you collaborated with someone else?
1: Absolutely. I think it was a really interesting experience because it was a much more usual experience way of working. I'd done Mm -hmm. these two books with my sister that were very personal and very much a part of who I was. And then I was given a manuscript that was very much part of who somebody else was and was very much about their childhood. And it was a really lovely, really interesting experience to dip into that and to have those conversations with somebody else about their totally different experiences of the world. Mm -hmm. And just in terms of working technique, it was a much more I suppose usual way of working that we had a couple of great conversations at the beginning and then I just ran with it and the book had already been completely written at that point mm. there was very little movement after that point I was given a complete manuscript whereas ordinarily I would come in well I don't not even come in I, I, I would be there right from the very inception of the idea um, so it was a very different and very interesting experience.
0: Natalia, I'm kind of looking for a a kind of a comparable question for you. And I, I, you know, I'm, I'm curious, when you are doing other kinds of writing, does it feel different? Do you have to get into a different kind of mind space to write children's books? Is it very different from script writing or copywriting?
3: Yeah, it's completely different. I think that you bring a lot of the lessons you learn in other media into it, but then it's really a different creature.
0: And how do you get into that mood or access that part of your brain that you need for the children's books?
3: So whether I'm writing a book that Lauren's going to illustrate or now I've started writing for other illustrators as well, it's the same process in that I start with a pinboard to do visual research. And something else that I nearly always do at the first stage of a book is make a playlist.
0: And are you thinking, uh, do you like think of children's books? Do you like the playlist? Is it? Children's music? Is it I'm curious if you're putting yourself in a child mind in any way.
3: Some of it is children's music, but not most of it. I, I think it's more about the world, conjuring a sense of the world that it's in. Some of it isn't even music at all. When we were writing Frindle's Wild, there were a few tracks on there that were just the sound of a snowstorm in a forest. <laughs> I must wow. have listened to that for about an hour total, often while uh, writing.
0: Can you describe that book? Because I think that will make sense if people have more of a sense of the narrative and the, the story that's going on in that book.
3: Frindles Wild is a fairy tale about a little girl who lives in a cottage in the woods with her granny. And it's about a powerful winter spirit that haunts the woods and who finds a way to draw her into his underground lair, which is underneath a fish pond in the middle of the forest. And it's a wintry world. And once she's down there, he won't let her leave until she does three impossible tasks.
0: And those kinds of, I don't know if we want to say classic fairy tales, um, that mood often kind of comes up in your books, right?
3: Yeah. We had one enormous influence when we were children. Our mum is from Eastern Europe. She was born in the Czech Republic. And uh, her family had to leave very suddenly in the late 60s when the Russians invaded. And they had to pretend that they were going on holiday. So they were only allowed to pack one small suitcase each. And her mother told her exactly what she had to pack, but because she was the youngest of three children, she wasn't being watched very closely. So instead of taking her coat, she took a book of fairy tales by Anderson, which were illustrated by the amazing Czech illustrator Trnka. And that was a book that used to sit on our shelves when we were children, like a piece of another world that had fallen into our living room. And it was a book that we were really obsessed with. And I think... In some ways, Frindle's world comes from that book and from experiences of sitting together on long afternoons, poring over it, and especially from the illustrations of the Snow Queen that were in there.
0: That is an amazing story. And honestly, I'm a little surprised that you were allowed to touch it. I mean, and I'm so happy because obviously it was like that could have become an object instead of an important book. Uh, Can you describe the, the importance of that book in your family life?
1: I don't think I knew this story until very recently. Um, We were very fortunate that our mum absolutely loves children's books. And I think she was so keen for us to be surrounded by them and to enjoy them that I'm not really sure when I was little I knew the importance of it, but I definitely felt it. It definitely felt important.
0: Actually, I'm curious. So, one of the things that I'm aware of um, from having friends, especially here in the States where it's very common. the first child typically speaks, you know, if they're, if one of their parents or both of their parents came from a different country, speaks a different language. The oldest one speaks it best and the youngest ones tend to just have maybe less of a connection with the language just because of the nature of, you know, how immigrants assimilate or, you know, the role of grandparents or whatever. Is that true for you? Do you, are, are, do you both speak Czech equally well?
1: Our mother didn't actually speak to us in Czech when we were children at all because she'd left under such traumatic circumstances. And she just wanted to assimilate. And she really didn't speak Czech very often at all, occasionally to her mum, but mostly they would speak in English. And it wasn't until we were adults that Natalia moved to Prague and started learning then. But I do think definitely that you're a little bit more
3: closely connected with Czechness and Eastern Europeanness—is that fair to say, Nat? I didn't really think Lauren had any connection, like emotional connection, with that side of our heritage until the first time I saw one of her illustrations when we were working on Hortense in the Shadow. And then I thought, oh, that's where it comes out with her.
1: That's so oh. true. It is very, very ingrained into the the aesthetic of my work. Um, I think you're right. I think I kind of buried it until I started painting. <laughs>
0: Natalia O'Hara and Lauren O'Hara, thank you so much for being with us today. It's been great to talk with you.
1: Thank you so much for having us. It's been absolutely lovely.
3: Thanks, Jean. Bye.
2: June, 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 June.
0: Isaac, Isaac, Isaac.
2: That was a really wonderful, frank, funny conversation. And I thank you so much for sharing it. But before we get to the meat of it, I have to ask you, since I have siblings and you are an only child, are the sibling among us like a strange alien race to you? Are they a source of bizarre fascination? Or do you feel like, no, I kind of get what it's like?
0: No, they are an endless mystery that I've spent my whole life trying to unlock And, you know, because it's one of those rare psychological differences that you're aware of from a really early age, even before you have a consciousness of how other kinds of differences might play out in people's families and their lives. It's a bone I've been gnawing on since I was a tot. I will also note here that almost all of my significant relationships, close friends as well as partners, have been with oldest or very occasionally only children which is also something that I've been trying to work out for a long time.
2: That is fascinating. You know, I think it's also funny on that note that they mentioned that, you know, they use only children in their stories because that's a good shorthand for loneliness, which is definitely true of fiction and especially children's fiction. But I got to say, as a husband of an only child and the father of an only child, you know, that's not really how it works in life. Only children is not a shorthand for loneliness in the real world.
0: Oh, I couldn't agree more. I was on my own quite a lot as a child, which is not necessarily true for all only children, but I don't know that I was ever lonely. And I think that being an only child is actually a bit of a lifelong inoculation against loneliness. Being an only child, you never have to share your sweets, it totally rocks. <laughs>
2: You know, it's funny because, you know, I have three siblings uh, and I love all of them. You know, they're great. Uh, I'm a big fan, but I cannot (laughs) imagine creatively collaborating with them. It just doesn't. I mean, first of all. You know, I'm I'm the one who's mostly does the creative work among the four of us. But even if that weren't true, it just seems like a, a weird proposition. But at least in theater, you know, which is where my background is, you really do often become kind of close friends with your regular collaborators, which can have its good side and <laughs> its bad side. Uh, how do you manage a collaboration when you also have a personal relationship at stake?
0: I have to say this is something I've avoided for years. This being collaborating with a really close friend. It's just too many eggs in one basket. Mm. But decades ago, I did kind of exploratory radio work, uh, along with my girlfriend at the time. And it did lead to some big arguments. And I did not enjoy that. But it was also great to be learning and trying things out in the company of A really trusted partner who I knew would always be brutally honest with me and who I could be totally frank with. (laughs) So there are definitely advantages, but like I said, I've avoided it when possible. As you say, though it's almost a given in theater. So you must have learned enough to write like a really, really thick book of advice about it. What's your big takeaway?
2: No, I don't know that I have that much advice about it, actually. It's something I think about a lot. I mean, they've clearly cracked this puzzle, you know, yes. in a way that I thought was really impressive. But it's also, you know, every close relationship is a little different. And so, you know, the the issues you're going to have to work out uh, are going to be different. I will say that, I think it's important though, you know, when you are working on something collaboratively to try to kind of protect those two relationships from each other a little bit. I'm not talking about like not being friendly in rehearsal or, you know, whatever it is like your friends, you can't lie about who you are, but I just mean it's, you know, sometimes, um, you have to give someone feedback and not be worried about hurting their feelings because it's about what the show needs, you know, or, or whatever it is. And, and just keeping in mind that it's like, this is a job, you know, they're going to give you some feedback that might make you uncomfortable or whatever. And sometimes you have to work that out with them. And sometimes you have to work that out on your own, you know, but I do think it's a weird thing in theater that I don't think is always healthy. It, it, you know, for example, I've never had the kind of cataclysmic row that Natalia and Lauren had to do in order for their relationship to move forward. I'm actually, you know, for someone who likes, to, uh, who likes small-scale conflict and arguing about things, I actually hate large-scale interpersonal conflict, and I try to avoid it whenever possible. Uh, so I've never really had a cataclysmic row with a collaborator and have, ha- and have that collaboration survive it the way
0: they have. Big same. Uh, And given what a massive jerk I can be when I'm arguing, I would never speak to me again either. So I think it's probably better if we leave it that way. (laughs) But I have to say, isn't that supposed to be the great thing about siblings? Like it takes a lot to break up with one, as I understand it, even if you aren't always in one another's pockets. Like, isn't that the whole thing that it's a as they say, an enduring bond?
2: I don't know that that's true of every kind of sibling. I mean, I think Mm. think we believe that's true of all siblings, but I don't think that's always true. You know, I just finished reading this book uh, by Nick Davis called Competing with Idiots, which is a joint biography of Herman and Joe Mankiewicz. Uh, the You know, Herman Mankiewicz wrote Citizen Kane. Joe Mankiewicz made All About Eve. They were both in Hollywood. They were really rivals to each other and at some point had some kind of, you know, kind of falling out and were very distant from each other for a lot of their adulthood. Um, it's written by Herman's grandson. And it's really fascinating because he's very sanguine. You know, he's not trying to cover up anything. He's really trying to honestly reckon with what is it about the sort of competitiveness of the Mankiewicz family that fed this very bizarre sibling relationship. Um, and, you know, that's, so that's a perfect example of one where it really wasn't an enduring bond. I mean, they were in each other's lives for the rest of their lives. So they only worked together a couple of times. You know? Interesting. Yeah. I am really glad that you asked that question about children's books with male protagonists and how it works for readers. I have a daughter, you know, we try to find books with female protagonists whenever possible. Sometimes she says, we're reading too many books with boys in them you know (laughs) um what did you make of their answer that the conventional wisdom about boys not reading books with girls in them is sadly true
0: you know i really don't have that many kids in my life right now so i can't claim any personal insight here but natalia's suggestion that it's the gatekeeping adults who set the kids on that path makes perfect sense to me uh especially if you're buying books for a kid that you don't know that well maybe people just kind of default to the safe choice which when you're buying for a boy is going to be a boy i don't really know but i i can just see that happening all too easily
2: yeah I mean, I, I agree with you and I actually think it's important to kind of intervene in that as early as possible yeah. to, you know, um, have books that feature a wide variety of characters with a wide variety of identities, which might not necessarily adhere to the gender binary at all. There's a wonderful children's picture book called uh, Julian is a Mermaid mm-hmm. that is about uh, um, a kid who sort of begins to explore breaking outside of the gender binary in the way that kid's grandmother gets involved in it. And becomes comes an enthusiastic source of support. That's Mm -hmm. very sweet. Um, You know, I would say that I mostly, most of the parents I hang out with, like myself, are kind of a parody of progressive Brooklyn (laughs) parenting. And so, you know, where the the books our kids are reading are often, you know, with female protagonists or whatever. But I do think it's important to intervene early and to encourage kids to read a, a lot of different Ideas, a lot of different ideas of even what a boy and girl is. So we're not stuck in a kind of essentialist gendered binary, you know, there's a way to reinforce that kind of gender essentialism while trying to be progressive at the same time that also needs to be avoided. It's it's complicated. It sure is. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I was really fascinated by their use of music and sounds, the playlists, the kind of environments that aren't just musical that they yes. make, you know, to explore their books. Uh, it seems to be a really wonderful way of accessing the soul of one's project. I go back and forth on using music because sometimes it makes it very hard for me to actually summon the words i need yeah. but it can also be a cool like sense memory exercise to get you back into it like if you haven't been if you take a long break from a project for whatever reason often cuz there's a deadline for something else and you need yeah. to get back into it like going back to that sort of thing is really helpful but so i have to ask have you made a playlist of i don't know great lesbian bands for your <laughs> book or something
0: i haven't and i know that i really want to but It's just so hard. I get really distracted by music. And so I tried some songs without lyrics, but I still got caught up in them. And then I tried listening to classical music and that turned me into like an amateur conductor. But I have to say the idea of listening to sounds like Mm non-musical sounds. That was new to me. Yeah, that feels really interesting. And I need help. So listeners, Isaac, What sort of sounds should I listen to when I'm contemplating bars and like softball diamonds? I could listen to, you know, my favourite dance music, but that again, it just it just gets me focused on something else instead of words. But what kind of sounds?
2: You're going to listen to Take Me Out to the Ball Game on a loop?
0: <laughs> I don't think they play that at lesbian softball <laughs> games, but I, hey, I don't know.
2: Well, you know, if you have some ideas of what June could be listening to, drop us a line at workingatslate.com or call us and leave a voicemail at 304-933-WORK. Because I will tell you, this particular quest, even though I used to be a sound designer off and on, this particular request has left me Stumped. <laughs> uh, I really, in part, because he's such a formative influence on me. I loved that they were so enraptured by that Hans Christian Andersen book with the mm. with the Czech illustrations. Yeah. Uh, you know, it really shows how these childhood reading experiences can just like echo through the rest of your life. I was just really moved and inspired by that. Do you have a formative work of art from your childhood that feels like it still affects your work today?
0: That was first. I to say, that was such a beautiful story. I'm so mm-hmm. glad they shared that. I have a formative kind of work of art that that I was absolutely obsessed with as a child, but I still, or really as an adolescent, but I still haven't really figured out how it has reverberated or why. But it was so important. It was it loomed so large. I can't just. You know, it can't be nothing, but I haven't figured it out. So what it was, as an adolescent, I was obsessed by all the versions of Born Free. And yes, Born Free, the story of Elsa, the lion cub who was raised by humans. Like at one point I could recite the books. There were like two or three sequels as well as the original. I watched the movie whenever I could. There was an American TV series that... In my memory, lasted for about five seasons. I looked it up; it was one season. But I, I swear, like I, I had every episode on tape. And when I sound tape, this was before VCRs, so I used to record the the sound of the TV show with my cassette recorder. Like. It, and I would listen to it over and over again. So Amazing. I don't even know why. I, I Really, I wasn't that much of an animal lover. I never really would watch wildlife documentaries. But there was something about that particular story. Uh, so, yeah, I'd love to, uh, maybe I need to go into therapy to figure that out. I like that
2: we have this list of therapy things for you to explore. <laughs> why you're attracted to only children and yeah. oldest kids. Yeah. Uh, what it is about born free. Um, was the lion an only child? <laughs>
0: I suppose he was, yeah, maybe. Well, she was. Uh, I suppose so. What about you? So you said Hans Christian Andersen was your Hans Christian Andersen. All those. Fa- there was a thing
2: called Fairy Tale Theater, uh, hosted mm. by uh, Shelley Duvall. Mm. Um, who as a child, I just had this unbelievable crush on. And so uh, uh, it was originally on Showtime, which we didn't get, so we had to rent it from the local video store, which was run by this Brazilian, this very nice Brazilian family. And um, I watched all of fairy tale Theater, but the one that I loved, which I have not gone back and looked at today because it, it has yellow face in it, is um, The Nightingale, which starred Mick Jagger as the emperor of China. What? Um, uh, so, um, but it, it just had an enormous impression on me. I've always loved kind of fairy tales and those kinds of stories, even though that's not the kind of writing I do. And I think a lot of my, you know, willingness to be a little goofy comes from being a huge uh, Muppets fan. You know, I watched Uh. the Muppet movie so often I had the entire thing memorized as Uh. a child. Um, But in terms of my like nonfiction work, I don't think any single thing has had as much influence on me as watching The Thin Blue Line in eighth grade with my mom. Um, that just blew my mind about like what nonfiction could be, what documentary could be. I mean, he got that guy freed from prison and found the real killer, you know, everything about it. And in fact, uh, when Dan and I were working on the world only spins forward, I discovered that it was one of his favorite movies as well. And if you're a real hardcore world only spins forward fan and the thin blue line fan, I can tell you the, Afterward, the final gesture of the world only spins forward. The the final little conversation with Tony is formally borrowed from the Thin Blue Line. It's the only place in the book where you see the questions that we're asking as this kind of epilogic gesture. And that's because that's how the Thin Blue Line ended. And so at some point we were like, we
0: got to end it like the Thin Blue Line. You're talking about Errol Morris's Thin Blue Line, right?
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, wow. yes, yeah, wow. yeah. The, the the true crime documentary that started it all. But just the way he used reenactments, the way he played points of view against each other, the way he kind of obsessively loops over the same events over and over and over again and changes the details of them. It was just a really life-changing uh, work of art for me. And when I taught nonfiction, I would always show
0: it to the students every year. Wow. That's all the time we have this week, unless, of course, you're a Slate Plus subscriber, in which case, of course, you will soon have a little something extra from this week's interview. Not only that, but if you join Slate Plus, you'll get extra segments of shows like Big Mood, Little Mood, which this week I was a guest on. And uh, you can hear all Slate's podcasts ad-free, and you can read every article on the Slate site without hitting a paywall. To learn more, go to slate.com workingplus.
2: Thank you to our guests, Natalia and Lauren O'Hara. And thanks, as always, to our magnificent producer, Cameron Drews. We'll be back next week for Karen Hahn's interview with animation director Christina Chang. Until then, get back to work.
0: This is the story of The One.